Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Last week, Sam and I set out a grand plan in order to never forget the episode number of the podcast, which we're on. And I was actually thinking away from the podcast, just how pointless that is, because when you download or go to MILB.com slash podcast or receive an alert that the latest episode of the show before the show podcast is available for you, the podcast episode number comes up as the very first thing. So you don't care, you know, but I never know coming into an episode what number that we're on. So Sam said last week, okay, we just have to randomly text each other the number of the upcoming episode. Yesterday, Sam does that and texts me 107 with no other context. And I just texted back, Sam, no, 252, not having any idea what he was referring to because I had already forgotten about the thing that we decided we were going to do in order to not forget something. So I should probably see a doctor of some kind. Yeah, I was going to say, this just all sounds like an excuse for you to say, like, oh, it doesn't matter. No. Like, I obviously forgot this thing we, no. we said we would agree to do, but no, it doesn't matter now. No, it's if anything, fine. it makes me more concerned for my mental health, which I feel like has been gradually slipping over the last few years anyway. But I'm 31, and I have, like, the short-term memory of of someone who was born in the mid-17th century right now. To be to be fair, I, when I listened back to last week's episode uh, – I said I would do it like on Saturday afternoon and I forgot to do it then. So I just randomly did it yesterday. Oh, that was totally it. It was just a yeah, different so day. Sure I was expecting it on Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Last Saturday afternoon. You that was totally it. Totally it. Um, so yeah, now we know, but Hey, hi everybody. Welcome in. It's episode number 107 of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com, the home of minor league baseball. I am Tyler Mon and Sam Dykstra is at Milb headquarters in New York city. Howdy, Sam. Hello. Uh, how are things out in Denver? They're good. They're good. Things are good. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday. For anybody that watched uh, that wild and strange Rockies Nationals game last night that ended in a 15-12 Washington win, it was like 35 degrees and like a mixture of rain and snow here last night. So I was not sad to have been indoors uh, for that. But it's like gorgeous here now and it's going to snow this weekend, but I'll be out of town. So I'm fine with that too. And so things are good. How are things out there? It's good. It's uh, it's it's not Trey Turner cycle weather. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we should all just you know strap in and look like an air- astronaut ready to get into his spacesuit. He really uh, did. He really did look like uh, <laughs> he looked like Rocket Man yesterday. Rocket Man or Buzz Lightyear without yeah. the suit. Like yeah. all of that. That's yeah. what it just reminds me when people wear those like full head the balaclava things. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty cool uh, though. No, like, I mean if if you can pull it off, that's that's all well and good. Um, 
you know, maybe it's the cold New Englander in me that's just like, I don't understand why you're, what do you, you don't need that. <laughs> you don't need that. Lame. Yeah, here I am talking about baseball instead of playing baseball and hitting for the cycle. So who am I to say? Hey, you can find the show before the show podcast at MILB.com slash podcast. And you can search for us, the minor league baseball podcast on iTunes on the Stitcher app and wherever else you get your podcast. And while you're there, give us a rating and a review and a subscription. Leave us some comments, send us your questions, your thoughts, your concerns podcast at MILB.com. We actually got a comment uh, on the iTunes feed uh, about a desire for us to talk about some more angels prospects. So we've got a topic coming up about an angels prospect today we'll discuss that and uh we'll we'll continue to listen to uh, any and all things that you guys would like to hear on the podcast let us know so with that we'll dive in three strikes is what we start off every episode with and this week we got some very exciting prospect developments in the national league west to talk about as the san francisco giants and the los angeles dodgers each called up top prospects from their organizations cody bellinger has joined the big league roster for the dodgers and christian arroyo has joined the big league roster for the giants and coincidentally enough playing against each other after their promotions which is really cool but this has been a fun week for uh to watch those two guys get called to the big leagues the Stories that sort of surrounded them were very fun. Uh, Christian Arroyo's mom refused to believe him when he called to tell her that he had gotten called up. And uh, she finally responded to a tweet that the Giants posted and said, I believe it now. And that tweet kind of <laughs> caught some fire. And so that was really cool. Cody Bellinger, we followed for a long time, friend of the podcast. He was on the show from the Arizona Fall League last year. But we're going to talk about this in a baseball context. Those are two teams that out of the gate haven't really been blowing the doors off anybody. Right now, you call up two very good prospects, but Christian Arroyo isn't enough to save what's going on with the Giants right now. Cody Bellinger can definitely add a dimension to the Dodgers lineup, but they've been dealing with some issues. Pitching-wise, Hunter Ryu has been off and on. Kenta Maeda isn't necessarily the same guy. So these are two guys who could potentially play big roles, but how big is that going to be? What should the expectations be for Christian Arroyo in San Francisco and Cody Bellinger in Los Angeles? Yeah, so so both of them were just very interesting call-ups in, in that uh, you know, we we think we have these uh, systems kind of figured out in terms of, you know, the best prospects are, you're going to have to wait because, you know, service time concerns, Super 2 concerns, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so what happens when, you know, Christian Arroyo is brought up, you know, third week of April or and Cody Bellinger follows him after that? And we'll get to that in, in the second strike, I think. But uh, the fact that both of them came up this quickly, A, it's great to see them rewarded. I mean, both got off to incredible starts. Uh, Arroyo was hitting 446 uh, through 69 plate appearances when he was brought up. Uh, that equated, you know, with his 478 OBP and a 692 slugging percentage to a 218 WRC plus. Uh, 100 is considered average, so he was almost, you know, well beyond that, obviously. Um so just tearing the cover off the ball. He was last week's tool shed feature. Uh, go read that. I talked to his manager at Sacramento um, who has seen, you know, guys struggle at AAA. He's been there a while. Um, and he said Arroyo hasn't taken to that just because he sees, he saw AAA as a challenge. He saw it as, you know, an opportunity uh, instead of, okay, now I need to force it. It's, hey, they trust me enough to be here. They trusted me enough to be in big league camp. Uh, so he's taken that and run with it, uh, forced his way to the major league roster. I initially thought this was just going to be a replacement for Brandon Crawford, uh, who we expect to be on the bereavement list this week as he attends the funeral of a family member. But it doesn't quite it didn't quite play out that way. 
Arroyo has started at third base. They've moved Eduardo Nunez to left field. Uh, if the Giants have had a problem so far this year, it is in, in left field, trying to find some consistency in that position. Uh, they sit seven games out right now in the NL West, seven games behind the Rockies, uh, who are a little bit of a shock leader right now, leading that NL West. Um, so, you know, it might be, you know, the front office looking at the situation and saying, listen, we can't get too far behind. If this kid is ready to hit right now, and by all, you know, by all accounts, Arroyo was ready, uh, even if those numbers were going to be coming down pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good over time. You know, he wasn't going to hit 446 forever at AAA. Um, but if he's showing that he's ready, you know, we need to do this now. Um, so Dodgers kind of the same way. They're four games out in the NL West uh, at 10 and 11. A lot of people have them as as a World Series team next to the Cubs in, in the NL, uh, at, at least NL West winners. Um, so for them to be falling behind this quickly, they've had some injury concerns, as Tyler mentioned, uh, specifically in the outfield. I think Jock Peterson is going to be out for a little bit. That kind of precipitated Cody Bellinger coming up. Uh, Bellinger, not as you know spectacular numbers as Arroyo, but he's certainly been hitting for power. Uh, 343 average, 429 OBP, 627 slugging percentage, five homers in his first 18 games back at AAA Oklahoma City. Um, we know he's a really, really good defensive first baseman. Um, I've, I've heard people say he could be a gold glover there. Uh, that's where his highest ceiling is in terms of defense. Um, but he's athletic enough uh, to play the outfield. He's actually played center field in the past. He, he, I think he's gotten at least one game there this year at AAA. Uh, they played him in left field for his major league debut. Funny enough, his first game in left field this year came the night before uh, with OKC. So... Again, you know, Bellinger's probably one of the best bats in that entire organization right now, minors or majors. Uh, if the Dodgers are worried about falling behind, you know, get his bat there now. Uh, they'll figure out, you know, service time later. Maybe he ends up going down uh, once everybody's healthy. I feel like that's not going to be the case with these guys. It, it kind of uh, Craig Goldstein of Baseball Prospectus made this reference before I did, so I want to make sure he gets credit. But uh, it's a little reminiscent of Nomar Mazzara last year. Yeah. Uh, he came up with the Rangers on April 10th. We all thought that was super early uh, for him. Um, I think at the time he was only 21. Um, and no, he hadn't even turned 21 yet. He was 20. Uh, so that seemed early, but okay. They bring him up for a little bit because they have a need. They'll send him back down to kind of play with the service time. He never ended up going back down. Uh, he stuck with the team because he was that good. Bellinger and Arroyo have that potential. Bellinger is certainly much more than Arroyo. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Arroyo, you know, reverts back to his double A form. Uh, you know, when he was hitting just 274 last year uh, with a 373 slugging at double A Richmond. Part of that was playing in Richmond, but uh, he, by all means, had grown a lot this year. Um, throwing a guy into the major league blender, he could fall back into the to those habits against really tough pitchers. I mean, he went against Clayton Kershaw in his second game, got a hit against him, but uh, he's going to be facing more guys like that as, as the season goes on. So, um, you know, th I, I think this is a case where two teams that we expected to be good have not been good, and they looked at their roster and said, we need to improve. We have the internal improvements, so let's make them now. You know, we'll, we'll worry about them later. Part of that might be they're both, you know, fairly large market clubs. L.A. certainly, San Francisco, kind of part of that next tier. But uh, if they're worried about arbitration or if they're worried about free agent years, they'd much rather win now, and they can figure out the money later 
uh, you know, they they will probably have the money to re-sign these guys if they end up being the superstars that we think they're they could potentially be. Um, but yeah, it's exciting to see guys rewarded in this way so early. Yeah, I mean, I think that pretty well covers all of it uh, from an on-field standpoint thing. I mean, I think Cody Bellinger, the one thing that will stand out probably pretty early is the strikeout rate. He struck out a good amount at AAA, and we've seen over the last few seasons. The guy who really comes to mind in that regard for me is Javier Baez. When Baez came up, he struck out all the time at the major league level. And a guy who, you know, has some holes, and he's a big swinger, and so that's going to happen. Uh, but with Cody Bellinger, like with Javier Baez, there are so many things in his game that add value to the point where you're not even really going to think about that that eventually when those numbers come back down to earth, you're just going to see what a multifaceted and extraordinarily talented player Cody Bellinger is. Um, Christian Arroyo, I mean, we've already seen in the big leagues, he had a game, uh, had a play in the game last night in which he turned a double play ball on a sharply hit grounder off the bat. Uh, he was playing in at third base, snares the ball moving to his left, 360 spin goes to second for one out, they turn it. Uh, so he's already showing flashes of just how exciting a player he is pretty much across the board in every one of his tools. And when you see that early from prospects, it's so cool because guys who get up to the major league level and have those moments where you can start building the little blocks of confidence and security in yourself at the highest level, those are huge moments. And if you're a fan base and you're looking at a kid who, you know, and the Giants, there's not a ton in that system right now, but when you can look at somebody like Christian Arroyo or like, you know, down the road, somebody like Tyler Beatty, those guys who make the jump when you can see those flashes from them early then you start getting excited especially if you're a fan of a team like the Giants like the Dodgers who really believe that you're only a couple of pieces maybe away from being a, a pennant winning team a World Series type of team those are really exciting Christian Arroyo this is earlier than I expected um, it's not necessarily I mean it's definitely earlier than I expected for Cody Bellinger but if you would have said one of these guys is going to be up by the end of April Bellinger would have gotten my vote 100% of the time but I think ultimately it's exciting that teams and we've discussed this a lot over the few seasons that we've been doing this podcast it's exciting that major league teams feel confident turning to prospects this early in seasons what it means financially, what it means for Super 2 considerations, what it means for service time considerations is far more complicated than I am able to analyze or give an educated opinion on. But just the fact that there are movements in front offices across baseball that have swept through the game that, yeah, we can trust a guy that we've developed like Cody Bellinger. We can trust a guy that we've developed like Christian Arroyo. And we've seen this throughout baseball over the last five seasons, really, especially the Chris Bryants of the world. Uh, the, you know, even when Carlos Correa was called up, uh, not necessarily as early, but still a guy who was extremely young, who an organization turned to when they just felt he was ready and not with much more consideration than, yeah, this looks like a guy who's a big leaguer right now. That's been really cool. And especially if you're a fan of the prospect game, this is the point. The point is to get these guys to graduation day. Maybe they're not going to stick there the entire season. Maybe we're not going to see Christian Arroyo or Cody Bellinger play 120 games in the show this year. But the fact that these teams have turned to them, they've shown confidence in those guys is really cool. And a congratulations to both of them. They're two guys that we really like uh, who have been great with us with the site and with the podcast and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's just fun because you get reminded of those human moments too where you see something like Christian Arroyo, his mom not believing that he was called up to the big leagues. Or maybe the best 
best tweet that came out of all of this was from our good buddy Tyler Beatty, who was on the show a few weeks ago, who said, as of 5.18 p.m. on April 24th, and that's my time, so 7.18 Eastern time, 4.18 where he is uh, with the AAA Sacramento Rivercats. Quote, Arroyo ran into my room. Beatty, are you pitching today? I'm sorry I won't be playing behind you. I got called up. And, like, those human moments are so cool for these guys. So congratulations to them. Congratulations to their family and friends and teammates. And uh, it's one of our favorite things when you get to see guys go off and have success. And uh, it's a pretty cool moment. Yeah, it, it's it's a, very Hollywood, really. Yeah, it really does. It feels that way. I, I You know, growing up, the closest we ever got to that uh, before, you know, I worked in this industry and just enjoyed baseball was the rookie. Um, yeah, you know, just seeing those moments like that. And you think like, okay, that's cinematic. That's not how it happens. Sometimes that's kind of how it happens. Every, every manager has their own way of doing it. Uh, you know, they, some like to surprise them. Some like to be blunt with them. Um, sometimes it comes from the farm director themselves, not the manager. Uh, but to see these guys all react in the way, you know, we feel like we would, or just straight up humans would, um, so much we, we, so many times we think, you know, they're athletes. They should act like they've been there before. No, get excited. Yeah. You know, you've been working at this for a very, very long time to make it to the major leagues. Uh, I, I saw a tweet. We should get this in there um, at some point in the three strikes, so we might as well slip it in here. Uh, Gift and Gope. Uh, yeah. We, we've talked about, you know, it was kind of a race between him and Dylan Unsworth to be the first African-born player in the major leagues. Gift got called up uh, to the, the Pirates. Uh, when he officially enters a game, he will become the first African-born player. So cool. And he, he had a quote before the game. Uh, this is me paraphrasing, but he said, it won't be real or it's, it's not real yet. It doesn't feel real yet. It won't hit me until Clint tells me to go into the game and then I might burst <laughs> into tears. <laughs> That's so cool. That's Which, so cool, yeah. man. Yeah. So uh, always keep things in perspective and the reactions of these guys has just been a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. It's very rare that you get to see people accomplish their life's dreams and you get to watch that on national television. Um, the, the thing that I always think of is that picture, uh, from a friend of the site, Jeff Bajanaro, uh, who is now the pitching coach in the D backs organization at, I believe he's a double a now, but last year when Zach Curtis was called up to the big leagues and was called up to the big leagues from high a, Jeff Bajanaro got a picture of Zach Curtis the moment he was told hand over his mouth in total shock. And those moments live forever. That type of stuff is, it is very Hollywood. It is very storybook. And we get to see that on a regular basis as people who, who follow and watch the minor leagues. And it's really cool. Cause you don't get to see that throughout a ton of sports. So congratulations to those guys and everybody else who's made a debut this year. And uh, we'll continue uh, seeing some exciting talent rise to the big leagues this season. Uh, strike two this week, Sam, this type of, and we talked about this a little bit, but this type of scenario where teams have been calling up top prospects seems like over the last few seasons has become more and more common, but it's not enough to necessarily call it a theme in and of itself. There are organizations that like to keep prospects down, let them marinate a little longer in the system before they get called up to the big leagues. Do you think that these two guys being in the first three weeks, four weeks of a major league season, is this a sign of a shift, a sign of things to come or are these isolated incidents? Um, yeah. So it, it kind of got me thinking, we're right on the cusp of a New York Times style piece. <laughs> you know, we've got we got two <laughs> top 100 prospects. They're both from the PCL. One more, and we could do like a big theme uh, of the week, but we we're not quite there uh, in terms of this. <clears throat> I think you know a lot of this is 
just the individual situations. I mean, both, like I said in the in the open, um, you know, both the Dodgers and Giants are not living up to expectations early, uh, and you know they have the pieces to make this work. They're they're not forcing this to happen. Um, you know, they're it's just kind of the way the season has played out. It just makes sense. Um, so trying to bulk it out to be this whole, well, now everybody's going to call up their top prospects. Uh, it might be a little disingenuous, um, but it's a, a question worth asking. You know, if it's going to happen this close to one another, uh, if it's going to happen at th this time of the season, um, you know, we'll have to keep an eye on it for sure. Uh, you know, maybe there's a name like the, the one who I kind of come back to is Jorge Alfaro within the Phillies organization. Uh, he's off to a tour that started in AAA Lehigh Valley. He's already on the 40-man. Uh, he's hitting 377 with a 1.003 OPS, uh, three homers, 10 RBIs in, in 15 games. Um, he's thrown out two, two of four attempted base dealers. He's got a cannon for an arm. You know, the Phillies, we didn't expect them to, to compete this year. They're kind of hanging in there right now. Uh, so, you know, if they decide... Hey, let's go for it. You know, they're right in the middle of that NL East race right now at nine and nine, four games behind the Nationals. Uh, they're a game and a half up on the Mets. It might be way too early to be talking about standings for all I know. But, you know, the Phillies have a piece there that, you know, is exciting, is definitely the future of the position. Um, do they start to think about calling up Alfaro if he looks more and more ready at Triple A? You know, I don't know. I don't know if this is an industry thing or if they're going to let him marinate because they are definitely in rebuild mode as opposed to, you know, the, the Dodgers and the, the Giants. So, um, you know, we'll have to keep an eye on it. Uh, I don't have a definitive answer for any. It's not like some big contract thing opened up this week um, and, you know, allowed everybody to, to call up their top prospects and not have to worry about, you know, service time or anything. Um, but, you know, if, if we start to see more at the end of this week going into next week, uh, maybe that'll that'll be a thing for sure. So, uh, as always, we'll keep you updated on any and all developments like that as the season goes along. I mean, there are so many guys right now in, and it's been such a strange year too for prospects, top prospects at the upper levels of the minor leagues, because the vast majority of our top 15 prospects or so are a double A AA and triple A in the MLB pipeline rankings. But a lot of those guys have had very up and down seasons. I mean, obviously we haven't even seen Alex Reyes on a mound, Tommy John surgery, Austin Meadows started off really slow. Tyler glass now has been up and down. I mean, he started in the big leagues. He's got three games under his belt up at the major league level, but you know, a med Rosario he's a conversation are the Mets keeping him down because of super two considerations is he somebody who could help the big league team JP Crawford he's a triple a in the Phillies organization he's really struggled to start the year there so this is such a unique case with Arroyo and Bellinger because they just blew up to start the season and I think oftentimes because of the hot take culture that we live in a lot of fans look at well call this guy up he's a top prospect and he's in triple a yeah, but if he's not doing great in AAA, it doesn't do him a service to call him to the major leagues and say, all right, have at it, kid. Um, so it's definitely a case-by-case -case basis type of thing. But again, the the common thread that organizations seem to be more open nowadays to giving a shot to prospects is really exciting, and it's really exciting for those of us who are fans of the minor league game to see what those guys are able to do once they get there. Uh, strike three this week, Sam, unless because I know you turned on your microphone. Did you have a point to make? <laughs> no, I don't want to no, interrupt I was just you. preparing okay. for strike was it that uh loud of a click no i could just uh i can just tell we just have that you know we're uh we're like of hive mind here 
yeah, the pathways between our brains have opened again. And <laughs> one of those, one of those things. Um, so we'll we'll move into strike three then. Uh, and we did get a question, a comment on on iTunes to talk to more Angels prospects, which means that I'm going to push for Michael Hermosillo to be a guest on the podcast at some point because he's my favorite Twitter follow. Uh, but we're not going to talk about Michael. We're going to talk about his teammate in the Angels system and one of the guys who, in my conversation with him in spring training, he raved about, and that's the top prospect in the Angels organization, Jamai Jones, the outfielder who was selected with the 70th overall pick back in 2015 an extremely good athlete uh, but a guy who has really struggled to start the season so far in full season ball with class a burlington so far this year a 176 222 309 slash line for a 531 ops um the angels obviously are very much into well-rounded toolsy athletic types of guys uh jemai jones actually has a, a very good football background his father played in the nfl he had a brother play in the NFL, another brother played in college, um, a very dynamic athlete. And the early returns in his minor league career pretty encouraging last year 48 games with rookie level Orem in the pioneer league a 321 404 459 slash line struggled a little bit in the final 16 games of his season with class a burlington but this year he's really struggled to get it going with burlington are there things to be concerned about here should we be worried about that from jemai jones or do you look at it and say you know he's 19 years old he's going to get it figured out guys kind of go through that growth that growth period at the full season level yeah, I, I don't think it's anything that worrisome yet. Um, and and thanks again for you know the guy who reached out with yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know the Angels are not an organization that we're we're going to talk about too much unless something big happens. Um, so if you are an Angels fan and and want to hear something about that or are an organization you feel like kind of gets swept under the rug, um, let us know and and we're happy. To, I want to make this third strike kind of into a question segment. If we could going forward, so you know, tweet us a question, email us a question, even leave us a review with something uh, you would like covered, and, and we'll try to get to it. Um, you know, in terms of Angels prospects, I think the only one who's really all that interesting right now is Jones, uh, for all the, the reasons Tyler mentioned. His makeup is off the charts himself. I mean, you talk to him; he's one of the most knowledgeable guys you, you'll talk to in, in uh, amongst prospects. But uh, you know, hitting 176. Uh, right now with a 222 on base percentage, 309 slugging. He's hit three home runs in 17 games. Uh, he's never going to be one to hit for too much power, so those three home runs are, are pretty good for him, uh, adding four stolen bases. Uh, so I'm not exactly worried yet because he he's showing a little bit of pop. He's showing his speed. Uh, the major thing I, I would point to to get Angels fans not worried anymore is that he's his BABIP is only 188. Uh, and for a guy with, you know, above average speed, plus speed even, that really works in the outfield but also works on the base paths, uh, he's not going to be a guy who's going to produce low babips um, or babips. I think somebody once brought up that they think I say that weird. I think you but, say it very uniquely, but I like it. With you, it sounds like a, it sounds like a sound effect. Babip. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it sounds like this the Skype call. I mean, it's it's a made up word. I don't think there's like an agreed upon pronunciation for whoever was like, Sam, you say it wrong. It's an acronym. Calm down, Good. people. Well, now there's they were taking away that little voice in my head that's <laughs> thought about that every time. But uh, you know, as we've talked about before, a, an average babip is around 300. Uh, that's going to change per per player. Um, some guys who are faster are going to have higher babips. Some are some who hit the ball harder are going to have better with bips because it's tougher to catch um 
slower players are tech usually going to have lower. So the fact that he's at 188 is so out of whack for him. As that gets better, as his luck improves, I think that's going to get much better. Uh, you're going to see the average climb. Uh, you know, he hit 321 last year at rookie level Orem in 48 games before getting the bump up to Burlington later in the year. Um, yeah, I don't think he's a 321 hitter at every level, but somewhere around 300, just below 300, is something he's more than capable of. Uh, you know, just kind of brush this aside. Still very young, uh, only 19 years old right now. He's turning 20 in August, uh, so this is even still his age 19 season. Um, if you're worried, if you're an Angels fan who's looking for hope, and you were hoping Jones was going to be that uh, hope at the start of the year, don't get discouraged quite yet. Uh, things are going to even out for him. Uh, he's still a really good fielder in center field. I know the, the Angels don't really have to worry about that uh, at the major league level, but uh, he is good enough at in the field to provide value. He's good enough on the base pass to provide value. And once everything kind of corrects itself in terms of his hitting, he'll be a value there too. So I wouldn't be surprised if he and if next year this time we're talking about him as a top 100 prospect, even after this slow start, I think he has the tools to make that happen. Uh, he just needs to show it over a fuller season. And uh, once we get a little bit, you know, weather warms up, bats warm up, the whole thing, uh, I think we'll see a much better Jemiah Jones down the line. It's kind of funny because for so long over the offseason, we were like, oh, we're just dying to have real baseball to talk about. And then baseball starts in at end of February, beginning of March. And it's like, yeah, we can talk about baseball, but it's spring training. So just keep that in mind. And then we get to the regular season. It's like, yeah, we can talk about baseball, but it's small sample size. Keep it in mind. So eventually we'll get to a point where we can say, yeah, now I feel like we can make actual judgments on guys. But I mean, that really is something that you do sort of have to keep in consideration is this is a guy who is not even a full month into his first full season in professional ball. He's 19 years old. He's going to be fine. But there is a learning curve there that can be difficult uh, when you jump into full season ball for the first time. Um, I do want to get to one note on a foul ball before we get out of here. And this is news that uh, just came across, at least as far as the old tweet machine goes. And I will read from a press release from CSN Chicago. Quote, CSN Chicago, the home for the most games and most comprehensive Chicago coverage of the Chicago White Sox, has announced it will be carrying eight games showcasing the Charlotte Knights, the White Sox AAA affiliate. The Knights feature a number of rising stars in the White Sox organization, including Yoan Mankata, Lucas Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez, Carson Fulmer, Nicky Delmonico, and Zach Birdie. CSM will carry the first of its eight nights home game telecasts on Wednesday, May 3rd, live at 10 a.m. Central Time as the Knights host their International League slash South Division rival, the Norfolk Tides. I'm sure that this is not unprecedented, but this is pretty well unprecedented for it's not unprecedented for a minor league team to be on television but for a minor league team to be on television in the home market of its major league affiliate is very unique this is really cool yeah that's that's a lot of fun uh i I think that happens when you know the team is rebuilding and everybody's paying attention to the the minor league teams anyway and when your triple a roster is loaded yeah i'm sure with the white Sox writers when a lot of the questions they're getting it are uh, is Moncada ready yet? Is Moncada ready yet? Now they can kind of show them. Turn on so, the TV. You can watch yeah, for yourself. Judge for yourselves. I mean, you can do this anyways. We should always say this. Uh, you can do this anyways with an MILB.TV subscription. Uh, the Knights feed is a pretty good one um, whenever they're playing home games. So, you know, if you're waiting for the your your particular team to, to start showing their AAA affiliate in your local affiliate or in your local area, no, you can do it already. Um, but yeah, the fact that uh, 
the White Sox channel, you know, is, is turning to, towards the minors is is pretty telling in terms of fan interest on the South Side and uh, just around the White Sox in general. That is pretty cool stuff. So keep an eye out for that, White Sox fans, if you're in the CSN Chicago coverage area. And with that, we'll wrap up three strikes for episode number 107. Coming up, we're going to visit with baseball's 95th overall prospect and the fourth-ranked prospect in the Oakland Athletics organization as the Nashville Sounds third baseman slash shortstop slash all-around good dude Matt Chapman joins the show coming up next from AAA Nashville. And we are headed to the Oakland Athletics organization where we find the fourth-ranked prospect in the A's system, Matt Chapman, who is a member of the AAA Nashville Sounds in the 2017 campaign. And back home in Nashville is the third baseman and the Sounds after a road trip uh, most recently through Colorado Springs. Matt, what's going on? Not much, guys. Just uh, just got home from our road trip and uh, enjoying the rest of my off day and getting ready to start a homestand tomorrow. Well, it's great talking to you. It's been uh, four games into the season for you, a couple of games at the start of the season, a break, which we'll discuss, and then a couple of games uh, over the last two days, three days now, I guess, uh, which thankfully we were talking about uh, your alarm clock this morning went off at 5.30 to get to the airport, get on a flight, get back to Nashville, but you had last night off. But that oftentimes isn't the case in the PCL, and I feel like it's something that uh, people don't really get the full scope of. The PCL can be really rough for travel, and you know, a 5.30 alarm is almost on the late side for a lot of these flights what's it been like I mean you've obviously had some experience with uh, what the travel can be like at that level um, playing there last year for 18 games the start of this season it's not the most glamorous at times uh, in the PCL is that safe to say definitely not (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean you get lucky sometimes where you'll have a have a mid-morning flight but for the most part you're right it's uh you know, anywhere from 4.30 to 5.30 wake-ups because you got to take the first flight out, and you fly out, and you're still playing a game that night. So hopefully you can get some rest on the plane or get a quick nap in when you get back. But, yeah, that's a lot of the stuff that, you know, goes on in the in the baseball world that, you know, maybe the, the uh, regular person or somebody on the outside looking in wouldn't fully understand. But, you know, those travel days in the PCL are definitely rough, and you gotta you got to dig deep for those games. So, Matt, when you get a day off after a, a travel day, I, not after a travel day, it's on a travel day today technically for you, but yesterday, um, you know, today you kind of get a chance to get back in and get acclimated. I mean, before you jump right back into a homestand, what, you know, I mean, guys, minor league baseball players are normal people. You have laundry to do. You have bills to pay. You got to get groceries and stuff. What do you do on a day like today? Kind of depends, um, but today, like you said, you know, I have I had I had to take care of some things, you know, get some grocery shopping done, get some uh, get some laundry done, pack up some stuff. Uh, but I'm gonna go to dinner with some of my buddies on the team a little bit later. Um, and uh, actually, my sister lives in Nashville, so oh, that's cool. Luckily enough, I've been yeah, so I've been spending some time with her. So maybe uh, stop by, say hi to her, and just uh, you know. Uh, do get out, do a few things, be a normal person, but keep it casual. All right, Matt, well, let, let's get into, you know, how the season's kind of gone so far. I, I imagine it's been a little bit of a frustrating start uh, for people who don't know. Um, you know, you missed a couple days with a left wrist injury, uh, put on the DL on the ninth. You came back the 22nd. Um, you know, what, what was it like to go through that this, this early, you know, I think it was the second game you were in, you had to come out and then you're back on the shelf again. 
Um, you know, what, what has this start been like this first month? Definitely not how you envision your, uh, your season starting. That's for sure. Especially being in AAA and being one step away, you always want to be in there and, you know, making a case for yourself to make the jump to the next level, but things happen. And in my opinion and the trainer's opinion, it was, um, me, me trying to play through uh, what was going on was the risk kind of outweighed the reward, and we know it's a long season. So for me, I really wanted to be in there, but it was smart to, you know, kind of get that break. And it was just kind of a freak thing. Uh, I took a ball off the wrist, a couple of funny swings, and my wrist just blew up on me. And I've, I've had some previous issues with that wrist. So, you know, maybe <clears> – <throat> so we, it was for sure uh, that I needed to get a break. But uh, I think we took it on the safe side, just making sure that I got – everything back to normal because, you know, it's better to take a few more extra days than risk pushing yourself. And uh, now I can play the rest of the season injury free and knock on wood. When, when did you first take that ball off the wrist? Uh, second game. It was in, uh, it was oh, it was in that game. game. Yeah. It was so, the so what game. were you doing to kind of prepare? I mean, the wrist is, is, is a pretty, you know, important piece of hitting, fielding, all that kind of stuff. I mean, during the two weeks you were on the DL, how are you trying to, keep fresh so you can kind of hit the ground running when you do come back? Uh, well, I, for me, it was, I basically, you know, take it obviously just try to stay in the game. We do play each team a lot. So I was trying to watch some pitchers, see what they're doing from a mental standpoint, just trying to stay locked in the game, but on a physical standpoint, uh, just keeping up with the treatment, uh, you know, tip my cap to our trainer. Um, he did a really great job and obviously we're still working on staying on top of being, uh, flexible and getting the strength done. But for me, it was staying on extra conditioning uh, because obviously I wasn't allowed to take ground balls and hit for a little bit, but making sure I was still getting, keeping my body in shape and taking care of myself, staying in condition uh, so that when I did come back, I was ready to go and I didn't feel sluggish or slow. So I feel I took advantage of, you know, the missed time uh, in a different way, and I feel, you know, as ready as I was opening day. Well, Matt, let me ask you this. Uh, what was the circumstance in which you were hit? Because you're not credited with a hit by pitch in that game. So was it one of those things where you were, for some reason, you got the, the shaft of being a, a foul ball charged on a ball where you actually got clanked on the wrist? Oddly enough, it was a ball off the bat. Oh, okay. Uh, so I went, to, I went to go try and uh, pick a short hop. Uh, I went to go um, just kind of make a play at a ball, and it hit me in the wrist and just kind of caught me funny. And next thing you know, my wrist was swelling up, and it was, you know, two or three times the size of my other wrist. And so we came out of the game, but luckily x-rays and everything showed no break. It just happened to hit in a bad spot and blow up on me, and it was just kind of one of those freak things, unfortunately. Well, that's behind you. So we're going to talk about uh, all good things going forward. And uh, I want to talk first about the development of your power as a hitter. In college at Cal State Fullerton, combined you at 13 homers. If you add up the seven homers that you hit in the Northwoods League with the lacrosse loggers, that's 20. In your first full season in pro ball, you hit 23 in 80 games with Class A Advanced Stockton. And I know one of the things that I read was that was really credited to a lot of work that you did with Brian McCarn, who was your hitting coach at Class A Stockton, to really tap into that power. Um, and obviously, I mean, you're a big guy and have a frame that projects for power, but it's such a difficult step for hitters to be able to take. And you've done that extraordinarily well. 23 homers in 2015. Last year, 36 combined between Midland and AA and Nashville and AAA. What was the key to that from your standpoint? Uh, 
Well, I appreciate the compliments. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the, the key, honestly, for that was just kind of um, making a few adjustments in my swing. I think in college I had a very uh, had a very short uh, short swing with a kind of more of a line drive approach. And it was honestly a little a slight mechanical change. I mean, my swing hasn't changed too much. Maybe just uh, kind of creating a little, getting myself into a better position to have some more leverage. Um, but more, more so, my approach and just kind of the the pitches that I was looking for and how how getting myself into good counts and just becoming a better overall hitter and a smarter hitter. I think uh, obviously working with the hitting coaches and watching guys and kind of picking up what works for you and developing your own approach and the little tinkers that you would do and adjustments you make. Um, so that played a big part. And obviously now I'm still learning how to manage the power and be a hitter at the same time. I think you're always trying to get better. So for me, it's uh, trying to find a happy medium between, um, you know, being able to keep that power up while also being a professional hitter and going and taking professional at bats. So you should always be wanting to get better. And for me, I'm just trying to really fine tune that approach. Matt, one of the things that really stands out about the A's system is that the hitters in this system are very dynamic throughout the entirety of a concept of what a hitter can be. Franklin Barreto, the top prospect in the organization, plays in the middle infield, but a guy that really projects for a good amount of power uh, yourself. Guys, you know, even further down in the organization, some of the younger guys uh, fit that mold as well. You know, Richie Martin spent time at double-A last year. He's at double-A this season. Chad Pender obviously has broken into the big leagues. Matt Olson is a guy who we've seen flash some really good power. Renato Nunez can crush balls. That is not something you can say about every organization, that the hitters seem to be so deep. A lot of organizations can stockpile pitching depth, but there's a lot of really talented hitters and a lot of them around your level and around your age in the system. So what is that like for you guys being able to kind of bounce things off each other, learn from each other, watch each other during VP and during games? How does that feed everything? It's great. It's definitely great. Um, I mean, you hit it on the head. We definitely have a bunch of good players in our organization throughout all three of those levels and just it's nice to be around guys that, especially a lot of those guys that uh, a lot of them are right-handed hitters or a lot of them do a lot of things well. So I think it's it's definitely nice to have some guys that you feel like you can compare yourself to or that you can relate to, that you can bounce things off. Like you said, you can. it's nice to watch guys take at-bats and pick guys' brains and learn from them. And, you know, maybe uh, that, that was what was so nice about, you know, spring training was being able to, be around a lot of those guys and also be around a lot of the big league guys and just try and pick their brains because it's a very hard game. And the more and more you play it, obviously the more you learn, but you never have this game figured out. So the more you can learn and try and pick each other's brains, it definitely helps. And being able to pick guys' brains that have success and are good players, it just makes it that much easier. Well, I guess let's let's take that one step further. Then, <clears throat> what's a piece of advice that you've gotten from you know somebody around your age or somebody in that group that you know you think has kind of changed your game th- these last you know couple of years of pro ball? For me, uh, a big thing um, that I would say is I was kind of picking uh, Max Schrock's brain, actually. You, uh, does that name ring a bell for you? Yes. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, he's, I mean, just just in the brief time I spent with him in spring training, I just, I, I mean, you could already tell that the kid can just flat out hit. He's a great player. 
for me, I was kind of just trying to pick his brain and see what his, his approach was with two strikes and, you know, some of the things he was trying to do um, when he was trying to battle. Cause obviously for me, I'm trying to work on, you know, a two, my two strike approach, maybe a little bit, or just trying to see what guys are doing. And for me, he, he was telling me that his two strike approach, he kind of, obviously the, the generic thing would be to shorten up and widen out and choke up. But for him, he was telling me that he basically just eliminates the inside half of the plate. And all he tries to do is, he kind of takes his legs out of it a bit and just uses his hands and tries to hit, you know, hit a, he says he tries to hit a ground ball as hard as he can at the shortstop. So for me, it would be hit a ground ball at the second baseman. But obviously that's, that's a little bit, uh, seems pretty generic and you can maybe can't just go up there and try and do that, but just trying to pick guys brains like that and see their two strike approaches or what they try and do. Because for me, I have my approach pretty much set, but it was nice to hear something like that and see what somebody that has a, a pretty good contact rate do what he does. Yeah, I'm glad you actually brought that up because I, I wanted to bring up myself. Um, you know, Tyler talked about your power, uh, 36 homers last year. You also struck out 173 times. And, and there are some players in this game where you know you're going to take the strikeouts if, if it comes with the power and you're kind of turning into one of those players. Um, you know, have the A's expressed to you any desire to kind of cut down on those strikeout numbers or do they just they know it's going to play, you know, the approach you have, it, it's worked out on your way up the chain and they're just going to kind of leave it the way it is. Um, they haven't really talked to me too much about that. Um, they, they kind of let you go out and do your thing. I mean, they, I haven't really had too much conversation with them about that. I think that, um, I think that is, that is something obviously that they would like to see me cut back on and, just because, you know, you cut back on that, the more balls you put in play, the more opportunity you have to ultimately just have more success. I mean, from anything, whether it be hits, power, runs. Cause, but for me personally, uh, you know, w with, regardless of what they think, you know, that's something that I want to uh, clean up on my own. That's something that I definitely want to um, – work on and eliminate from my game. I mean, obviously they're going to happen. There's, but there's a right way to do it. And I think last year I learned that a lot of those times that it was, it wasn't necessarily me getting beat. It was more so me beating myself. So I think the strikeouts are going to happen, but if I can eliminate the amount of times that I chase or that I get myself out, those things, I think it's going to kind of take care of itself. Cause for me, a lot of my home runs did come with two strikes. So it's kind of, kind of teetering that line of, you know, do you want to sacrifice, like you said, the power for the strikeouts, but I think that there can be a happy medium. And that's definitely one of the biggest things in my game that I want to work on just ultimately to be a better hitter, because I feel personally that I have the ability to have that power and also put up a higher batting average and be a, a well, more well-rounded hitter. All right. Well, we've talked a lot about offense and, and power, but um, you know, anybody who's read a scouting report on you, it, I think the highest grades you get are normally for your defensive work at third you know, the A's even tried you out a little bit at shortstop last year. Um, to you, you know, how do you think you've kind of grown as a defensive third baseman? And, you know, how do you kind of define what is a good defensive third baseman or what you're trying to, you know, trying to work towards becoming? Um, I think that the, I think that the defense, the defensive part of um, my game kind of obviously comes a little bit more natural. Uh, defense is a little bit more uh, of a natural position, just kind of 
uh, I mean, growing up as a kid and just playing playing baseball or whether in high school, college, all that, you do so much work. And I think that uh, luckily I was blessed to get some good hands, but just all the work that I put in, I think, you know, in college, college is really where I elevated my defensive game and learned how to learned um, some good, some good things. And I gave a lot of credit to Ron Washington too last year and made a few adjustments with me, but defensively at third base, the biggest thing is just positioning because the, the ball comes at you so fast that the what gives you the most range would be your positioning and just kind of anticipating. That's uh, It's such a quick reaction. Obviously, somebody with better reactions will have a better opportunity at third base, but if you can anticipate what pitch is going to be thrown or get told what pitch is going to be thrown from your shortstop or put yourself in a good position, you're ultimately going to – that's when going give, to give you the most success at third base. It's such a unique position in that way. Matt, a product of uh, one of the baseball powers in uh, collegiate baseball, Cal State Fullerton. And I read something about Cal State Fullerton that sort of blew my mind, which is since beginning D1 play in 1975, the Titans have never had a losing season, which is absurd. Uh, but Matt, tell us about what it's like, because college baseball programs and the, the dominant college baseball programs, I feel like in a lot of cases kind of run under the radar compared to Alabama football or Duke basketball or whatever it is, because in college baseball, it's really difficult to build a program and sustain it for so long because you're going to be losing athletes earlier in a lot more cases than what you necessarily would be in football and baseball and that type of thing. But for you to have gone to a program like Cal State Fullerton to learn what you did there as a, a collegiate athlete and then be able to jump into pro ball and be so successful, just take us back through your time there and how that prepared you for pro ball Cal State Fullerton definitely prepares uh, everybody for pro ball in my opinion I think that uh, one of the biggest things you learn there first off is how to conduct yourself uh, coming in as a freshman if you you come in as a freshman and you think you got it all figured out or you know it all you're going to get humbled very quickly um, I think that that was a, something that was really good at Fullerton was you learn how to be part of a team and you learn that you learn how to do things the right way and, you know, how to earn your respect. And I think that that is something that helps you uh, out in pro ball a lot. Obviously on the baseball field, I don't think that there's a school that you can get a better baseball education from just from, you know, the fundamentals, whether it be base running, what to do in certain situations. Um, and you better be tough if you're going to play baseball there. I'll tell you that. Um, you know, our, our coach, I definitely give a lot of credit to him. He he definitely challenges you and uh, put, <laughs> puts a lot puts a lot of pressure on you or he definitely challenges you and tries to get under your skin and tries to, you know, bring the best out of you. So if you can get through that program, you can get through pro ball, I'll tell you that. 17 College World Series appearances and four national title, national titles for the Titans in program history, and they've launched even some legendary coaching careers. Augie Garrido, of course, was there back when the program started in the mid-1970s, but one of the real baseball factories. And Matt, we'll, uh, we'll leave with this one. Um, guys who have started to make big jumps out of the Pacific Coast League, that's happened this week. And, you know, all of these things are on that track toward the ultimate goal. You go to college at a program like Fullerton, you jump into pro ball, you learn different things about your swing, you're mashing homers over 30 
plus homers last season. And then you make it to the final level of the minor leagues. And just this week alone, we saw two top prospects in Christian Arroyo and Cody, and Cody Bellinger promoted to the major leagues. For you being at a stage where this is, you know, kind of finishing school at the AAA level, uh, what does it say about where you are in your minor league career? And when you look at guys like that, does that give you – any different perspective on where you are and just how quickly it can come? Or do you even think about that at this stage? Um, and it's, it's definitely uh, hard not to think about things like that sometimes, but for me personally, um, I mean, definitely excited for Christian Arroyo and Cody Bellinger. I think both of I've played against both of those kids for the last two years. And I mean, both of those guys are studs and it's well-deserved uh, for me personally. I know that when the time when the time comes, uh, I will be ready. And when the time comes, I think it'll be the right time for me. All that I can really control is going out there every day and taking care of my business and just trying to get better because I think that uh, I think that there's some things that I still need to work on and get better. And I'm just going to try and be the best player that I can possibly be, so that when the time comes, I can have the most success I can. He is Matt Chapman, the fourth-ranked prospect in the Oakland A's organization, number 95 in the top 100, according to MLB Pipeline, and a member of the AAA Nashville Sounds, and now healthy and back on the field and enjoying the back end of a rare back-to-back off day in the PCL. Rained out yesterday and an off day today, so go enjoy it because there's a good chance it doesn't happen for the rest of the year except for the All-Star break, so make the most of it, Matt. We can't thank you enough for the time, man. Best of luck. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. One road trip already under the belt for Benjamin Hill in the 2017 season. Back in the role, Ben. What's uh, How was the road? How was Frisco? Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back, and it was good to go on the road. Um, the 2017 debut of Ben's Biz. I mean, I'm Ben Hill, and I'm also Ben's Biz, but it's always very striking to me to go on the road and feel like there is this whole other persona almost. And uh, it was great. I was in Frisco. This was a rare trip where I just visited one team. As I've mentioned before, the Frisco Rough Riders were the only team in the Texas League in all of Texas I'd yet to visit. Uh, that stadium's undergone a lot of improvements and uh, innovations in general throughout the front office over the last couple of years. So it became imperative that I visit, and I kicked things off uh, April 20th, April 21st in Frisco, and I uh, got posts on the blog about it now, and uh, much, much more to come, including some video content, which is fairly unprecedented here in the world of Ben's Biz. Well, we got to ask you about the the thing that everybody wants to know about in Frisco. I mean, two titans of the minor league baseball world collided on the business side when Benjamin Hill got to hang out in the lazy river in Frisco. What was it like? Right, right. Wait, wait. So who's the Titan I collided with? Well, you and just the concept of the lazy river is a Titan. I'm always colliding with, I'm always colliding with concepts. Clashing with actual people. The Titans. I'm uh, yeah, class of the conceptual Titans. That, that's <laughs> me for sure. Um, I, I, I rode the lazy river. I did the Choctaw, the Choctaw lazy river to be uh, exact. Choctaw being the name of a uh, local Indian tribe slash um, Indian tribe owned uh, local casino. So I, I um, the first time I saw the Lazy River in person, you know, I've seen photos, I've written about it. Um, I think my first thought was it's a little smaller than I thought because it has gotten so much hype. And um, I think I maybe blew it up in my mind to some just absolute extravaganza. But then uh, later in the evening, around the sixth or seventh inning, I went over there, interviewed some people, did a video segment, you know, kind of uh, interviewing veteran riders on what to expect. And then finally I got in the water. And once I'm in the water 
And uh, it's a lazy river, so the current's not very strong. It's heated, so it feels perfect. And it took a long time to do a lap. And the more it went on, the more it did start to feel bigger and bigger, um, not just in my mind, but in reality. And, and it's uh, just in right field, and it kind of goes to right center and back, correct? Right, right. Okay. Because initially, start- like when they first threw the idea out, it was like, they're going to have a lazy river, the whole outfield. And I was like, that sounds amazing. And then when they unveiled the design and stuff, it's still very, very cool, but it's not, you didn't traverse the whole field. You kind of go out to right center and then you curl your way back. Right. It'd be great if it was the entire 360 degree concourse and you'd slowly float around the entire stadium. <laughs> uh, Somebody needs no, to do that in the next ballpark that opens. It'll happen. It'll happen. Um, but yeah, it, it's just like you said, you know, you get on your tube or just jump in, um, on the right hand side, uh, you know, close to the foul line on uh, in right field and it goes well into center field, you know, not quite to dead center, obviously. Uh, but it's a long, lazy ride. I was there on Thursday night when I got in the water. Uh, that's one of the rare nights when it's open. Thirsty Thursdays is one of the rare nights when it's open to the public. Um, you have to buy a separate tip- ticket, but it's not a group area. It's kind of tied in with the Thirsty Thursday, uh, more group hangout promotion. And it being an early season game, it, it wasn't packed, but there were – it was a youthful crowd. And not even – so youthful in a lot of cases, I don't think a lot of the crowd could even drink yet and take advantage of you know Thirsty Thursday. But a lot of teens, college students, I interviewed a bunch of uh, frat guys in the water who were there on a kind of outing through their frat and uh it, it was just it was a good night and uh the and they keep it open you know, it was a long game it almost went four hours and went extra innings and uh they kept it open throughout and so it just provides some really cool views and uh you know added value to the ballpark experience if you know showing up in a bathing suit and and riding along on a lazy river during a baseball game sounds appealing to you and i think it should f- sound appealing i mean i'm not going to tell you or anyone what should <laughs> sound appealing but it once i got in the water I realized this is something I actually like, not just some internet thing that is cool in theory, but you're never going to do. And, uh, you know, kudos to them for coming through on a pretty high concept uh, ballpark improvement. And there's two things I want to touch on. First off, you said you talked to veteran riders. Are there already people who like do this? every week or every night or something I mean, by veteran riders i mean anyone who'd been in before okay all right <laughs> uh, i don't know if there were like clubs of people lazy you know river rider clubs not quite i wouldn't be surprised uh, if down the line i i just talked to literally i interviewed a lifeguard and uh, this will all be out on a video of uh, by the okay. early next week but i interviewed a lifeguard and i said how many lives have you guarded and he said three or four and i just thought that was a very bizarre answer i mean huh. aren't you yeah, guarding you all- know <laughs> but aren't you guarding all the lives that <laughs> ever? That's true. Yeah, that's like, true. Yeah, yeah, I think he just really focused on three or four lives that he was making sure to guard, but um, maybe needs to expand his approach to guard all lives. But he was a he was a good lifeguard. I'm not knocking him at all. Well, my other thing was what outside of just the lazy river. I mean, we talked about this when you got back, but uh, you know, how does Frisco kind of play into you know this idea we kind of have of Texas? We we have of Dallas. Everything is big around there i mean what was the concourse like what was the stadium like how did it kind of fit into that uh, is it like an urban environment or more suburban environment i mean what is, what is frisco itself like uh it's suburban but in that only in texas style feeling you know it's part of the dallas fort worth metroplex and uh, the stadium has been there since 2003 but the area surrounding it is developing rapidly a lot of new apartment complexes uh frisco itself blew me away when I kind of learned some more facts about it that you don't have to go back that far 
about 30 years ago, there were approximately 3,000 people in Frisco. And right now, there's about 160,000 people in Frisco. They're right near the ballpark. There's the Dr. Pepper Arena, which is the Minnesota Minnesota Stars. <laughs> I think it would be the Dallas Stars. The Dallas Stars uh, practice facility. They have concerts there. They have a D- NBA D-League team. They have a minor league hockey team there. Um, in close proximity is a gigantic Ikea. In the immediate area, there's a new uh, Toyota North American headquarters being built. There's a furniture store, Nebraska Furniture, that's the, if not the world's largest furniture or furniture store than the largest in the u.s the size of like 11 football fields and that's owned by uh, uh warren buffett's berkshire 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 hathaway berkshire anything that has to do with money i don't know how to pronounce it and uh so it's a town that has grown massively as sort of the resulting sprawl from an already massive urban area that is dallas fort worth um and the frisco rough riders are right in the middle of that and the area they're in is there's apartment complexes but it's not particularly residential per se it's very wide open as a new york city resident i cross streets all the time but i don't like crossing streets in texas or anywhere else because the intersections are like you know, four lanes going each direction and you have to hit a button for the light to change. And, and, uh, so, you know, the Texas size aspect of it definitely, uh, definitely threw me off a little bit from my uh, more Northeast sensibility, but it's a really interesting place. And the rate of growth in that region is astounding. And I think some of the improvements, the Rough Riders have made, as well as just Dr. Pepper Ballpark, since it has been built, uh, reflects that Texas size mentality, uh, huge stadium footprint and, you know, the concourse has like eight houses on the concourse, um, essentially. You know, these are areas that have suites and party areas and, and, and restaurants and whatnot, but they it looks like a miniature housing development on the concourse itself. So it's not the type of ballpark you're going to see very often, and that's great for me and for anyone. You don't want to go to a cookie-cutter place, and uh, Dr. Pepper Ballpark is one of those places when you go in, you're immediately going to know you're in that facility and not think to yourself, oh, I've been in like, you know, half a dozen or half a dozen, two dozen, three dozen places that look pretty much like this. All kinds of stuff on the blog from Frisco and more coming. It's bensbiz.mlblogs.com and we'll pivot away to that uh, with a very interesting story that came out of uh, the the Southern League, the border league of the Texas League in AA and a very unlikely guy for this story to be about. It's a fascinating story in and of itself, but I feel like the person that it's about, you never would have picked to be the subject of a story like this. But Sal Fasano, former major league catcher, um, arguably the most legendary mustache of the last, I'll say half century in major league baseball. Now the manager of the double a mobile Bay bears has a style with his lineup cards. That is extraordinarily unique. Ben explain. Right. Well, I wouldn't say extraordinarily unique because in talking to Sal, there are others that do it. That's true. (laughs) But his is just his just seems so much better. Guns, man. Yeah. Well, no, I'm just saying, like, because like I've seen there's major league coaches that have done it, uh, and it's caught a little bit of notoriety. Jerry Naren, I know, was one that that people really glommed onto. But Sal Fasano's is like a different world. Like Sal Fasano, I feel like in his off time, he works at like a Renaissance festival. Right. I guess we should so explain what, what he does. Right, right. And I'm sorry <laughs> to contradict you and get you all riled up. I no, no. I tell your heart rate is all like fast right now. Uh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's the only way it goes for me. Right. Uh, Sal Fasano is a self-taught calligraphist, and he does his lineup cards uh, using calligraphy, you know, dipping his pen with various size nibs into ink. And he's self-taught 
autodidactic, as I said in the story. Yeah, very, go. very good word. You very said good that word. And calligraphist. That is really impressive. Yeah, yeah, I have a good vocabulary. I'm a writer, and I, I as often as the case, I first uh, learned about Sal's uh, calligraphy via the via Twitter. He's the manager of the Mobile Bay Bears, Double A Southern League, and uh, I saw them tweet out at lineup cards, and I immediately got this idea like that's going to be a good story. So. You know, got in touch with them and talked to them. And I've heard this about them before. If you Google Sal Fasano and you read profiles on them, you'll see that they're often glowing. And I, you know, what do I know from a 15 minute conversation? But he seemed like a really thoughtful, decent, intelligent guy who would be the kind of guy to teach himself calligraphy because it's just something uh, unique and uh, kind of clears his mind. And, and I, I posed that question to him. I said, you know, being a manager, you probably need time to reflect on the ball game to come. And he really seized on that idea and said, yes, absolutely. You know, doing my lineup card in calligraphy is, uh, is, is part of my quiet time before a game. But my quiet time is different. Here's the direct quote here. Quiet time for me is funny. I'm using a calligraphy pen and listening to heavy metal. Like, leave me alone so I can get my thoughts together. You throw in the fact that I look like a guy riding a Harley, and it all makes for a pretty weird combination. So it kind of does, but it all makes sense, I think, once you kind of read about it and learn about it. So Sal Fasano and the team has announced that they're going to have a uh, – there's a link to it in the story. They're now auctioning off his lineup cards on May 5th. Um, with some of the proceeds going to a charity of Sal Fasano's choice. And I think these would, would be great collector's items to have a Sal Fasano uh, lineup card. And, um, you know, another thing he said to me is, you know, I think being in the lineup is special. I think it deserves more than a Sharpie and a scribble. And I just think it's really cool to apply that, to take that literal and make your lineup card through the grind of a 140-game season in the AA Southern League, make it a work of art. And I think that really expresses a larger concept that is very admirable and let's just kind of paint the picture even deeper because you and i talked about this beforehand what exactly what type of metal is this guy listening to while he's doing this well no i asked him that and i didn't put it in the story because i'm sorry sal i've been saying a lot of positive things about you i was a little disappointed in his response <laughs> that his his two go-to metal bands are corn and tool and uh nothing against those bands well, actually, to me, a little bit against corn. I'm sorry. But, um, you know, they're more like path of totality. 90. Was it path of totality? Right, right. We've been making a lot of corn references. Path of totality. I know, for, for 107 episodes, we've had way more corn. <laughs> yeah. For those not picking up on the corn references right now, path of totality is corn's 11th studio album, and also the name of the uh, astronomical phenomenon is when an eclipse passes over uh, the area that's in total darkness is the path of totality. I neglected to ask Sal Fasano if path of totality is one of his favorite corn albums, but he likes corn and tool. Tool I can get behind a little bit more. I guess I was, you know, romanticizing him a little bit and hoping he'd say some, you know, classic 80s stuff or some Motorhead. Um, and then he's known for his Fu Manchu mustache. And there's a band called Fu Manchu, maybe just really heavy rock more than metal. But I would love if Sal Fasano listened to the band Fu Manchu. But maybe that'd be a little too on the nose or, or under the nose, as it were. Nicely done. Yeah, I um, Sam noting that just now makes me think of that episode of The Office where 
Jim talks about his uh, he and Pam their first night away together. They go to Dwight's farm and they're shoveling manure. And he says, "I always envisioned it with less manure. I mean, some manure, just less." That's kind of our corn references. We've had far more corn references than I think anybody would have ever figured for a podcast about minor league baseball. Um, but we'll go from the Southern League. He'll stay in the South, but we'll move to the South Atlantic League and the Charleston River Dogs, who are uh, <laughs> trying to tackle a uh, a world record in one of those things where I don't really get how a world record exists for something like this, but 4,025 cans of Silly String found their way into a Charleston River Dogs game, and they attempted to break the Guinness World Record of the largest Silly String fight. Give us some more details on this one. Well, they they did. They bought four thousand cans of silly string, and uh, during Which, remember, like when we were kids, and and Ben and I are older than Sam, but when we were kids, remember when silly string was like outlawed because it was flammable? Yeah, I didn't even I, realize that it like came back. It's water soluble and non toxic now. Okay. So, okay, especially since the team did this on Earth Day, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that. Oh no! Oh, oh no! Oh boy! Well, on Earth Day, the River Dogs celebrated uh, Mother Earth by buying and distributing 4,000 cans of Silly String as part of an attempt to set a world's largest Silly String fight world record, which did previously exist as sanctioned by Guinness. And Guinness are hard to get to sanction a record. So the River Dogs clearly beat it, but whether or not it gets sanctioned, that's another story. You need a lot of documentation. They shot it off during the seventh inning stretch. You know, a lot of crazy visuals. I'm sure it'd be a memorable moment if you're at the ball game. And this is normally the sort of promotion where, among other people, your director of operations might step in and say, uh, no, because who's cleaning that up? But you know who the mastermind yeah. of this promo was? The director of operations. He's wow. a masochist <laughs> by the name of uh, Philip Geary, you know. Came to Charleston by way of the Bakersfield Blaze, which kind of tells you a lot if you know the Bakersfield Blaze. Yeah, that's true. Um, and so he told me, I talked to him on the phone after it was all said and done. He told me Silly String uh, celebrations were part of a, a birthday tradition within his family, where if it's your birthday, you get shot with Silly String. So that got him, you know, on a train of thought that led to doing this, a world record. And uh, if you work for the River Dogs, you know, one of the more uh, out there teams, you can actually execute on an idea that big. And he said he stayed up, you know, his cleaning crew stayed with him until midnight, and then he stayed up until six in the morning uh, cleaning. And it was very difficult, he said. I have some quotes on that in the story about uh, the, the specifics of the cleanup process. But he, been, he eventually had to do it himself all the way till 6.30 in the morning, take a two-hour nap, get up the next morning, and keep doing it. And then they had a Citadel University baseball game at noon the next day. Oh, my so goodness. There was a time crunch. It sounds miserable, but you know he doesn't regret it because he wouldn't have done it in the first place if he didn't want to do it and you know didn't want to give himself that challenge. But a lot of the times we talk about promos on this podcast, and I say a variation of you know other teams will pick up on this idea. Other teams will steal this idea. I don't think this idea is yeah. going to be stolen. <laughs> that is true. Uh, and, Tyler, you've been around a lot of minor league teams as well. Can you imagine, you know, from a groundskeeping director of operations, no. just a general manager saying yes or no? No. The fact that this is – it's so bizarre a world that it was the operations guy that came up with this. I mean, that is – that to me is the most baffling. That's like a sales staff being like, why don't we just give tickets away for the rest of the year? Seems like a smart idea. 
That's like the most. My favorite quote in this, though, is he says, uh, quote, when the silly string hits the floor, it looks like a Jackson Pollock painting. So I think next time we do it again with 8,000 cans and don't clean it up, then we'll go from playing at Joseph P. Riley Jr. Ballpark, which they call the Joe, to Jackson Ballpark. We can call it the Jack. Like, he's already got this all thought out. Well, there you go. Then there you go. They can play ACDC's classic song, The Jack, over the PA, and uh, <laughs> maybe South Asana will give that his thumbs up in, and the have, heavy movie, in the heavy music category. And have specialty uniforms that are just splotches that apparently make sense <laughs> about, you know, uh, uh, the maturity of human beings, but High really society. are just splotchy. Yeah. Sam, you sound so cynical, man. You got to step back and 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 see what and take in the Pollock. It's like 107 episodes of being on this podcast with me has finally rubbed off on you, Sam. Oh no, I just haven't had a chance to share my Jackson Pollock feelings, and now that (laughs) the moment has arrived, I'm I'm seizing it. Sam is all over it. Ben, what else is coming up this week uh, in promo preview? Uh, you know, Sam and I were going through it. Why well, I wrote it, but you know, Sam and I were going through it earlier today. And it, you know, I don't think it's a very exciting week. Um, I wrote about the Portland Sea Dogs welcoming a soap opera star to the ballpark, and that has already been postponed. So ignore that, strike that from the record. I should change the story. Um, kind of cool bump, uh, bobblehead uh, from the Omaha Stain uh, Stain Chasers. <laughs> the Omaha Storm Chasers are giving away a Salvador Perez Salvi splash bobblehead with him holding a picture of. Well, it's non-branded, but we can assume it's. Gatorade or something, or maybe just water. Well, whatever. He's holding a a water cooler in honor of his penchant for splashing players as part of post-game celebrations. That's, I think, the coolest bobblehead of the week. But, you know, on the whole, and you guys know this, I mean, when it's still the school year, still cold weather in a lot of places, you know, a lot of the uh, promo big guns are being saved for later. So, uh, oh, yeah, and Jim Abbott on the Saturday. Yeah, that's really cool. It's going to be an Inland Empire. You know, Jim Abbott, famously born without a right hand, who, I learned this just in writing a little blurb for the promo com, never played in the minor leagues. Really? Yeah, which is... I never knew that either. Rare for anybody, but you'd think someone who was born without a right hand who had that much more to overcome would have spent some time in the minor leagues. And uh, he didn't play in the minors until well into his career as part of like a I don't know, rehab or that something. That is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. He he yeah. he made his major league debut in 1989 at the age of 21, having never pitched in the minors. All this is to say, the Inland Empire 66ers playing in San Bernardino uh, are having a disabilities awareness night, and it's D I S capital A B I L I T I E S. Anyway. <laughs> The capital A, I think, to, to emphasize abilities within the disabilities and not to emphasize it through a negative term, which makes sense. But anyway, it's Disabilities Awareness Night, and uh, they're giving away a limited supply of Jim Abbott bobbleheads, and Jim Abbott himself will throw out the first pitch and be the, the guest of honor. And uh, so that's a pretty cool promo as well. Jim Abbott, big league debut at 21 years old. He did not pitch in a minor league game. That was in 1989 when he debuted. He didn't pitch in a minor league game until 1996 when he made four appearances with AAA Vancouver in the uh, then California Angels organization. That blows my mind. I did not know that. Uh, But that is really cool, and it's a really cool promo there. You can catch all that and more at uh, Promo Watch for this week at MILB.com. And Ben has all kinds of stuff up on the blog and coming to the blog. And, uh, Ben, we'll do it again next week. Thanks, buddy. Hey, thanks. Uh, listen to Fu Manchu, The Action Is Go. Sal Fasano, if you're listening to this, listen to Fu Manchu, The Action Is Go, a really great album. Thank you.
wrapping up episode number 107 of the show before the show podcast which you can find at milb.com slash podcast as well as on itunes and the stitcher app and elsewhere milb tv is your home to catch all the best and brightest of minor league baseball on your television or mobile device or wherever else you choose to uh, imbibe your medium sam what are you watching on milb tv this week yeah so the the matchup i have my eye on um not exactly sure which day it's going to happen, and that's not because I'm coming to you with a lack of information. It's literally because Justice Sheffield is listed as the probable starter for both Saturday and Sunday uh, for Double A Trenton. So we'll look out for either one of those days uh, when he'll be on the mound. Uh, the reason I have that circled is just because they're playing Erie uh, that or this weekend, and Kristen Stewart. You know, as of this recording, he's homered in his last two games. He has five homers in uh, 18 games total this year. I think that's tied for the Eastern League lead. So he's showing power again uh, with the Erie Seawolves. Uh, we know he showed off a lot of power last year in the Florida State League, which is a pitcher-friendly league. Now he's in the Eastern League, a little bit more friendly to hitters, and it's still playing very well at that that level. Um, and... Uh, so uh, I'll be interested to see how that happens. Uh, Stewart is a left-handed hitter. Uh, Sheffield is a left-handed pitcher. Um, so that'll be kind of two meeting of, of you know, same, same handedness. Um, what happens in that battle, we'll have to see. Probably Sheffield has the advantage just because that always goes towards the left-handed pitchers. But if, if uh, you know, Stewart can crank one off him, that'll be pretty telling on how far he's come along with his power and how well it's playing at the double-A level. So that matchup will be particularly interesting. Um, if you're a Tigers fan or a Yankees fan, you'll be able or you'll be wanting to watch that matchup. Uh, two really good prospects in your organizations. Um, so either Saturday or Sunday, again, check check the Trenton site uh, as we get closer to the weekend, find out exactly when Sheffield is pitching uh, to see when that happens. So that's, that's one for me. What about for you, Tyler? I'm going to go to the Class A Advanced California League where the uh, Stockton Ports, the high A affiliate of the Oakland Athletics, since we talked with an ace prospect, figure I'd go with another ace prospect. They'll be visiting San Jose, which is one of the uh, the few Cal League teams uh, to have MILB.TV coverage. And A.J. Puck, uh, who is the number two prospect, I believe, in the A's organization in uh, the 2017 rankings from MLB Pipeline. And he is. A.J. Puck, the left-hander, is slated to go – as a starter on Saturday against San Jose. Um, actually, no, check that on Friday. I got all mixed up day wise on Friday against San Jose, Friday, the 28th against San Jose. The reason I state it in that fashion, he's slated to go as a starter. The way Stockton's been doing things is they basically right now have an eight man rotation and guys are alternating starts with piggyback rolls coming out of the bullpen. So started his first outing of the season against Modesto on the 10th of April, then came out of the bullpen for a second outing, then went back into a starting role on the 19th of April, then came out of the bullpen for his fourth outing. So it'll be a start for A.J. Puck. He struggled out of the bullpen his last time out, gave up five runs on five hits over three innings against San Jose uh, in a relief capacity on the 23rd. So he'll get a chance to rematch with the San Jose Giants coming up on Saturday. But again, as we note, 
regularly with pitchers. Check the schedule, the Milk TV schedule. Probables will be listed on the scoreboard page uh, for each league, but those are always sort of subject to change. Sometimes a rotation move happens. Probables have already been put into the system. They don't get updated necessarily because that's controlled at the team level. So if we catch something, if we notice something, we'll make a change. But uh, just always check, and you might be surprised to see that maybe there's somebody pitching on a day you didn't expect them that you're really excited to see. So uh, AJ Puck going this weekend against the San Jose Giants, and that will do it. For this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, you can again find and subscribe and rate and review on iTunes and on the Stitcher app and everywhere else. You can get in touch with this podcast at MILB.com. Sam is on Twitter. He is at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. I am at Tyler Mon. And a big thanks again to Matt Chapman for joining us from AAA Nashville and Benjamin Hill as well. And we will talk to you guys next week. Yeah.